Okay, let's get started. Dr. Montano, please join me. We're going to talk about the monster under the bed. So I'm the monster, <laughs> uh, but I don't see the bed. I would like one right now. I'll tell you what. <laughs> We're going to reveal binge eating disorder from a clinical and patient perspective. So this is a different type of presentation. It's CME. We're going to provide, you know, information from the literature, but we're also going to add another dimension to this, the patient dimension. So we have Andrew, who's going to join us uh, for the third part of the presentation and give us the point of view from someone with lived experience with binge eating disorder. And I think that's very impactful, and it brings it home. How many here treat people with binge eating disorder? Raise your hands. Okay, you all should be raising your hands because you have in your practices and your encounters with patients people with binge eating disorder that goes unrecognized. So we're going to talk quite a bit about that as well. And they come to us for their comorbidities, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, and so on, substance use disorders, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, or, uh, for example, uh, uh, increased weight, not losing weight despite being on a diet, uh, hypertension, the whole bit. So we're going to talk about that as well. I'm uh, Dr. Leslie Citrome. I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. Who here has heard of Valhalla? Okay, Valhalla, wow. New York. All right, great. So <laughs> it, you know, it's where Norse gods go to die, but I'm not a Norse god, nor am I dead. But anyway... I have with me Dr. Montano, a good friend who is in private practice and does clinical trials, and he's an internist. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually have my same practice operating alongside the clinical research, so it's wonderful to use to have the opportunity to do both. And we know that internists and primary care also deal with lots of psychiatric diagnoses. And you have as well over the years. Oh, yeah. Primary Mental Health Care Network is primary care. Here are our disclosures. Uh, we do consult. We do speak. Uh, the list is here. We're also going to talk about both approved agents and unapproved agents. Now, BED is kind of a stepchild in terms of psychiatry and different interventions that have been FDA approved. There's only one approved uh, drug now for BD. There's hopefully soon there'll be another. But we're going to talk a lot about off-label options. And they don't necessarily work, but we're kind of desperate. We're looking for things to, to help our, our folks with binge eating disorder. We're, uh, you know, please be reassured that the content that we're presenting has been reviewed for fair balance and so on. We're going to identify the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder spend quite a bit of time talking about that because we need to identify it and we need to be prepared to ask the right questions. We're going to go over how to ask because if you don't ask the right way, you won't get the information that you need. We're going to talk about screening for comorbidities as well. And then for the second part, we're going to talk about the interventions, whether it be non-pharmacological or pharmacological or combined. And then lastly, as I I mentioned earlier, we're going to ask Andrew to come up here and give us a patient perspective, and we'll have a, a discussion. We have these three chairs here. We'll be sitting in them, and we're going to have a discussion and ask you for, for questions. Brennan, 
Dr. Montano, please tell us about binge eating disorder. How do we diagnose it? Let's first talk about how to frame it. Well, it's important that you and I both, we all understand that my training, we had inadequate training for any kind of psychiatric illness. We also had inadequate training for overweight, obesity. And early on in my practice, I was frustrated because I couldn't seem to find a way to to make a difference in people's lives. I think as we look at not only obesity, but psychiatry and primary care where it needs to be really brought back and, and, and refreshed, we can't separate the brain and the body, can we, Les? So here we are now. I have a wonderful patient who's going to talk to you today. His name is Andrew. He's 48 years old. Andrew, we want to stand up and just, just... So this is Andrew, okay? Came all the way out from Connecticut, by the way. Thank you so much. So... We were doing a trial. The trial was on binge eating disorder. Andrew answered the uh, advertisement. Something caught him because he was suffering. And I wouldn't have known right away if I hadn't really looked into this illness and, and, and learned about it. Uh, he had no previous diagnosis. He had been to many, many doctors, I am sure. Uh, active lifestyle. He's a personal trainer, and he hasn't veered from that for many years. For how many years have you been a personal trainer? About 20, years. 20 years. Okay. So he had an active lifestyle, but he was consumed and obsessed by what he was going to eat and how he was going to fit it into his schedule every day, every day. Uh, obsessed by meal planning. He had never heard of binge eating disorder and he was relieved. So much so that during the first two weeks of the trial, I walked into the room and he said, Doc, I've got my life back. So that's how powerful this is. Now, why don't you keep that in mind as we go through this program. DSM defines BED as recurrent episodes of binge eating. Usually, a, in a, that means eating a, a large amount of food in a discrete period of time, far more than the average person would and a sense of lack of control in this process that must be there. The episodes also must be associated with three of the following symptoms. Eating more rapidly than usual, eating until you're uncomfortably full. You have physical and emotional pain with this uh, disease. Eating large amounts of food when not feeling like um, uh, hungry. You're not eating because you're hungry. I had a patient 25 years ago that said to me, you don't understand. If you say hot dog, don't eat hot dogs. It's don't eat five to ten hot dogs for me. And I don't eat because I'm hungry. It all comes back now. I didn't know about BED then. And also frequently because of the shame involved, feeling guilt and eating alone and being embarrassed, disgusted with yourself. You know, it's not at all unusual for all of this to be present in someone with BED. And when I read out the criteria to them when, when talking about the illness, they say, yeah, I have that, I have that, I have that. Is that, you know, is that in your book? And then they were like amazed that this was a disorder that has been recognized and can be, you know, uh, characterized by, by these, uh, these elements. The loss of control, though, is really essential, though. 
You could eat a lot without a sense of loss of control. You don't have BED. You must have that loss of control. And this will go back to the idea that BED is not just about eating a lot. It's the obsessions and compulsions related to food. Absolutely. That's driving everything. How many in here have had their patients say to them, I don't eat because I'm hungry, doc. Can you show me? Yeah, how many of us have heard those, those words, that expression? And yet we're not taught very well how to discuss it with right. patients. We're going we're yeah, to go we're through that. that. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, so by definition, mild is one to three binges a week, moderate four to seven, severe eight to 13, and extreme greater than 14, uh, and that's per week binges, okay? The but lifestyle, you, do you, you know, so let's go back to that slide yeah, there. Because sure. this actually trips a lot of people up. Because you're going to read in the clinical trials that they assess moderate to severe binge eating disorder. What about the mild binge eating? Well, one to three binge episodes per week is considered mild. Maybe. What if that person is quite distressed about it? Uh, then we can actually bump it up to moderate. So one to three binge eating episodes per week can be quite distressing to the individual. And then it's, it's not fair to call it mild. That's the, very well, well spoken. And yeah, there's the, something else that, that goes along with that that's coming up. And what that is is that half the people who have binge eating disorder are not obese. Oh, right. But they may be on their way. So this can go from one to three to eight to 13 under stress. And it can go from being not obese, a little overweight, to super obese. Yeah. So don't let that fool you. One to three may not be mild. Thank you. So, whoops, I went the wrong way. Here we go. Estimated lifetime prevalence overall, uh, about 1.2% in men and women, 1.25, but more pre prominent in women than in men. Um, the important caveats, obesity only half only half. So don't be thinking that you have to have an obese patient, okay? You don't. But you usually have overweight. Although there's a high prevalence, isn't there, Les, in the super obese, greater than 40 BMIs. Right. So attendees at a bariatric clinic who are going for surgery, they routinely assess for binge eating behaviors, and it's very common. So when you do have an obese person, you must screen for it. But don't let that fool you. You can have someone whose normal weight has binge eating disorder, provided they could expend those calories that they consume. So being a personal trainer, yeah, you expend those calories. Being a younger person and more physically active, you burn more calories. But the older you get and the less physically active you get, weight does accumulate. Yeah, and it's, this is an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't matter what your uh, race or ethnic origin is. Um, it doesn't matter um, really at all. The onset of BED does occur a little later, usually around 21 years, than anorexia or bulimia. And the persistence is about 16 years, right? Yep. So very common eating disorder, the most common. And although many, many of us have... Uh, preoccupation with our weight and shape, the BED patient is often also very seriously concerned about it. BED is not associated with compensatory behaviors such as purging or excessive exercise. And since if you have a, if you have a compensatory mechanism, you're bulimic. Right. You know? So we used to call binge eating disorder in the old days non-purging uh, bulimia. 
Uh, and there actually was in the original DSM-3 before they mucked around with it, the ability to, to actually use similar language. And then it disappeared. And with uh, the uh, DSM-3R and the DSM-4 and the DSM-4 text revision, there was no way to diagnose it because this purging was an element that had to be present. So what can we do? What did we call binge eating disorder? We called it eating disorder not otherwise specified. Ednos. Sorry, Mrs. Smith, you have Ednos. That's why the DSM keeps getting thicker, yeah. by the way. But now we have binge eating disorder in the DSM-5, and we just need to be careful uh, not to confuse it for bulimia nervosa. So you don't have the, the purging, the excessive exercise, the laxative abuse, and so on. So I have another question for the audience. How many of you feel comfortable when you are with a patient and you are going to discuss their weight? How many feel comfortable discussing weight? Well, that's great. It's really improving. Because we were not geared for that when we were given medical training. Obesity was not discussed. And um, again, half of the patients are obese. But we didn't have a way or an approach to really be able to make a difference. So it's not ordinarily revealed that this patient would have a disorder like this, especially in a rapidly paced primary care setting. We're seeing 38 patients, 25 patients a day. You don't want to take the time. Or it's very, very short, like, oh, you've got to eat less and exercise more. Doesn't work. So we need new approaches, and we're going to talk a bit, and, and I'm looking forward again. This is to do with, to deal as well, less with the stigma of this, of, of overweight and body image, you know. So body image concerns much stronger in BED than persons who just are obese, okay? Be aware that they have shame associated with having this. They know there's something that's not right. And Andrew is going to talk about that. I think it's very important we give him ample time. You know, the, the most common time people binge when they have binge eating disorder is when their spouse goes to bed. So when they can do it alone and they won't be interrupted and no one will know about it. And for uh, men, if they have a fridge in their workshop in the basement, that's where they'll keep their stuff. Absolutely. And Andrew, you're eat. going to address some of that as yeah. well, I know. So, because that, that was the pattern that Andrew had. Um, Weight-based uh, bias, very hard. It's both in medicine and the patient is down on themselves as well. Oops. Sorry. Let's keep moving here. Okay, so the context is important. Remember, we've talked about a single episode or two episodes is still very important. Uh, by the way, the patient can be a health nut and be consuming very healthy foods, but they're eating, and eating way beyond the average. It's not at all uncommon for someone with binge eating disorder to pull into McDonald's, pull out, pull into uh, uh, Burger King immediately, and, and continue this binging. So be aware that it's not about hunger, not about hunger. And again, regular overeating. We're all going to do that probably coming up on Thanksgiving. Although, I think you're Canadian, aren't you? Uh, I do it twice. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. What's the second time? So uh, Thanksgiving in Canada is in October. Ah. And then in the U.S., of course, it's in November. Okay, well, that's great. So, uh, again, overeating is overeating. Binge eating is not because of hunger, and it's, it's out of control, okay? 
So etiology, multiple neurobiological uh, reasons. Uh, there are disturbances in dopamine signaling and in muopioid as well. It's thought that there are gene candidates for this as well. And we do see genetic uh, nature, nurture type things happening where people who have been eating often have family members who have been eating, right, as Andrew does. And often there is underlying um, psychological stressors and even epigenetic changes from abuse and other things. So this is a highly comorbid disease. Yeah, it, it, it often travels together with major depressive disorder and anxiety. But when you treat the major depressive disorder and anxiety with the appropriate interventions, the binge eating disorder may still persist. You have to also treat the binge eating disorder separately. It's because the biology of it is different from MDD. And, and basically, uh, you know, some people have called it food addiction, but it's not really an addiction. There's no hedonic quality to consuming large amounts of food in a short period of time and feeling terrible about it. It's more of an automatic behavior. You are no longer able to stop eating. This loss of control is because your cortex can no longer control the deeper structures in the brain that uh, are associated with impulse control and compulsive behaviors. So this disorder is an over... Uh, the, the brain has been overtaken by structures that promote automatic behaviors. So the obsessions and compulsions, and it's very hard for our cortex to, to stop that if you have BD. I, I can't help. I'm going to have Andrew very quickly, if he'll turn his mic up, tell, tell us about what one doctor or one practitioner said about your addiction. Um, for, so I, I did have uh, a doctor just say, listen, you're a big guy that just eats a lot. It's not a real addiction, um, and it's something that I, I've dealt with. I, I've been, uh, I've been started suffering from binge eating disorder for about 35 years. But over the years, you know, I went to different doctors, and I was always told, well, it's just, you know, I'm half Italian, but like it's, Italian people just eat a lot, you know. <laughs> but for me, when I would eat like a large pizza, a sub, $20 worth of McDonald's, and a half gallon ice cream, I would think this goes a little bit beyond... Um, you know, just liking to eat a lot. I would say the best visual I can give, it's like when you see a shark, you know, around blood, how they just go into that frenzy. That was me. I would completely lose control. Like, before, um, if I came here and seeing this, you know, buffet, I would have been shaking because I would have been like, just let me pull a chair right up to the buffet. It's, so I don't have to spend the time going up and down, <laughs> making trips. Uh, <laughs> But really, it, it was 35 years. It started for me about 11 or 12. Uh, you know, Andrew, we're going we're gonna to oh, have sorry. you talk more about that, uh, if you don't mind, yes. uh, when we're through this oh, sure. section. But, I just, but the addiction thing, I think, is really important. Yes, yeah, yeah. so it was never considered uh, a real addiction. I was always told, be, be happy that it's not drugs or alcohol, that like, food really isn't addictive. So Thank it, you, it was always dismissed. So, so the loss of control. Loss of control. Thank you for that. Exactly. Yeah. So loss of control, and it's not like you can stop. You know, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So it, it, you remember the days of, of depression when we would say to someone, oh, just buck up, uh, it's, mm. or thinking it's a moral failing? That's how where BED is today. Most people do not understand that this is a biological disorder 
where there's a loss of control, and you can't buck up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Which is why one of the things that you talk about in these slides is how to approach a patient with BED. Yeah. So it's a secret. It's a secret disorder. People will not bring it up spontaneously. They're ashamed by it, and they don't know that it's a disease. So it's under-recognized. Yeah. How under-recognized is it? Oh, well, 3.2% of, of patients who were screened in a large survey and had BED were diagnosed properly. So 3%, 3 out of 100, it's not very good. Yeah, it means 97% were not. They snuck by. They weren't, they weren't. And it will happen to you as well. It happens in primary care, especially because of the rapid pace and you're seduced by all the other problems, sore throats, bronchitis, etc. It happens in psychiatry too. So even though I started my private practice with referrals from two social workers who dealt exclusively with eating disorders, and I became a de facto eating disorder psychiatrist, even though it was never part of my research interest, it was part of you know, my private practice. And uh, I thought I knew all about it. And I was also treating other patients who were referred from them who didn't have an eating disorder, or so I thought. So I was treating this woman for major depressive disorder for years. She's still my patient. And then it emerged that as she got older, she was gaining more weight. And she would complain, I'm gaining weight even though I tried all these diets. And it didn't really click mm. that, hey, what's going on here? And then finally I said, well, you know, do you ever, like, eat more than you intended? And did you lose control over how much you're eating? Yes. Yes, that happens. And then I go over the whole criteria for binge eating disorder. Yes, I have that. I have that. I have that. I have that. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have binge eating disorder and major depressive disorder, and I didn't adequately treat her BED. Yeah, so it's more than just about the time, isn't it? It's about our mindset yeah. and where we have come from. Yeah, and here, here I was. I thought I was knowledgeable. <laughs> And it, 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 it fooled me. So I now make it a practice. When I ask about, you know, your appetite and sleep, everyone asks about appetite and sleep, I hope. With the appetite, just ask one more question. You know, how, how have you been eating, changing appetite? Have you lost or gained weight? Well, tell me, while we're talking about that, have you ever, like, ate more than you wanted to and, and kind of lost control over what you were eating? If you, like, introduce it that way, it's not pejorative. It's like... Okay, it's logical that you ask because you were asking about appetite and weight anyway, and you'll get your answer. Yeah, there's so much shame around the disease that it's important to listen to what Les says. You ask, the, you use the ubiquity approach. You ask it in a way that is forgiving. We understand. I often proceed my, my uh, discussion with, so many, many of my patients have a problem with their relationship with food. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with food. That's another way to go. If you come at them with, you know, you're eating too much and you're not getting any exercise and that's why you're fat or heavy or big, those are not good words. So we have to be very careful as we go to look at the words we use and it's an inter and it's an interesting that we just evolved into this slide. Yeah, you know, you know patients want to talk about emotions and triggers, and sometimes providers just want to talk about weight-related issues, but that's not what this is all about. Yeah, it's striking a balance here and understanding 
that our way of thinking about uh, overweight or obesity is really a bit antiquated. This disorder is one of several other disorders that combine to cause a problem with body image and eating and a problem uh, with weight, ultimately, for most people. So with that in mind, we have to be forgiving. Can you imagine, Les, treating diabetics who have binge eating disorder and getting really upset about why is your A1C continuing to go up? Aren't you, aren't you following the, the good advice? I spent 20 minutes talking with you about your diet. Send you to a registered dietitian. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, you know, it, when your uh, inner structures of the brain tell you to do stuff and you have no control over it, it's really hard to uh, stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And when talking about it, uh, weight and BMI are okay words. Uh, descriptions of eating is eating even though not physically hungry and loss of control is okay. What's not okay is fatness, excess fat, large size, heaviness, obesity, and willpower. There's nothing more insulting than talking about willpower. Oh. Yeah, this isn't about willpower, and, and Andy will tell you that. It's not at all. So remember, share that binge eating disorder DSM-5 definition with your patient. Use the ubiquity approach. Many of my patients suffer. This is the most common eating disorder of all, and it's something that's treatable. That's the good thing. It's treatable, okay? They feel validated. They feel like you're appreciating them for who they are and not just this terrible disorder that has consumed them, obsessively consumed them. So there's also, uh, Barry Herman developed a very nice um, binge eating disorder uh, screener. This is a good screener. You ask the first question during the last three months, have you had any episodes of excessive overeating, eating significantly more than uh, the average person would, would eat? Uh, in a similar period of time. If the answer to that is no, you can stop right there. You don't have to do anything else. Yeah. But if it's yes, then you need to continue. So I have this in a little uh, rack with other pamphlets and so on in the waiting area. Mm. And, you know, it's not going to be uh, looked at by everybody, but it's going to be looked at by more people, and I share the office with others. So other, you know, it's going to increase the yield of people who are more knowledgeable about binge eating, if not for themselves, but for a loved one. If, uh, you know, the screening can be a little cumbersome. I actually prefer to incorporate it into my review of systems when I ask about appetite and, uh, and weight and just throw in there, oh, by the way, as we're talking about this, can you tell me a little bit more uh, if you've ever, you know, eaten more than you intended? And, and less when I've had the discussions with my patients, the question I ask first is that first question. Yeah, yeah. because that'll reveal And then it. I know whether I need to go down that path or not. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so a very good to have this screener. Uh, it doesn't diagnose, but it's a very good screener. Um, high healthcare utilization. There, uh, you want to speak a little bit about this? Because this is something that you see primarily, a lot of counseling, self-help support groups, people coming to psychiatry. Um, Rates are lower uh, uh, for men, but really, BED is, is recognized or diagnosed. Yes. They get treated for all sorts of other things except for their binge eating disorder. Yeah. So what this yeah. slide tells us is that people with binge eating disorder have high rates of comorbidities and are high health care utilizers, and yet they're not getting their BED addressed. So in my world of primary care, we're looking at 
Sleep disturbances? Yes. And when you look at that, of course, you're looking at um, uh, uh, COPD and uh, sleep apnea. And if you have any patients who have sleep apnea or are being screened or you're screening them, you better, you better check to see if they have binge eating yeah. disorder too. Just ask if they've ever eaten more than they had intended yeah. and lost control over what they're eating. Yeah. It takes 15 seconds. So a lot of osteoarthritis, as you know, all the medical comorbidities, diabetes, for sure. And again, think about a binge eater with diabetes. They're not going to do well. Here's a scary thought. People who are overweight or obese but without binge eating disorder are at increased risk of metabolic syndrome. People who have BED, regardless if they're overweight or obese, have an even higher risk of metabolic syndrome. The fact of having BED will increase your risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes quite apart from the actual obesity. Absolutely. And remember, this is not only medically comorbid, but highly comorbid. As Andrew had to screen for our study, in clinical trials, we need a very clean, we talk about a clean patient who doesn't have any comorbidities. That's almost like, where are we going to find this person? Because most people with, with BED are highly comorbid with other psychiatric disorders. That's a very important point. You know, when we're going to talk about the clinical trials, they're relatively clean populations of people without much in the way of comorbidities. The patients that we treat have a lot of them. And in my own practice, it, the BED is, is also there in addition to MDD or anxiety disorders or, or both. And that's how they come in, into a psychiatric practice. Now, on occasion, you will get a, a, maybe a self-referral or referral from someone else who just has BED and nothing else. That's a little unusual. Uh, in, in terms of the psychiatric comorbidities, by the way, they're related to the severity of the binge eating and not to the obesity. So it's the binge eating process, the experience that is really uh, more impactful than, than just being obese. And it's obsessive, compulsive eating. So we use scales that are used in uh, looking at OCD to look at the binge eating as well. We also realize that it's an impulse control disorder. And impulse control disorders frequently are associated with higher rates of suicide. So this can be a very serious illness, suicidality being one of the worst outcomes. Yeah, even after accounting for MDD, the risk is higher. So... 90% of patients with BED will meet criteria for another psychiatric disorder. And treating that disorder does not necessarily cure or help the BED. So I think um, with that, Les, I think we, we have this beautiful slide. Colorful, isn't it? I love pictures. And if you look, these are all the psychiatric comorbidities anywhere. But you see especially phobias and particularly social phobia and PTSD. Again, PTSD, some kind of core abuse at some point with its nature and nurture, with a genetic predisposition. We're going to learn more about that as time goes on about dopamine genes and re rewards, reward networks, etc. So um, I, I love that slide list. I, I'm going to borrow it from you if you don't mind. Please do. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, homework, personal life, social life, all affected. And Andrew will also discuss that with you. So I'm going to leave the rest of this presentation 
to my colleague and uh, come back when, when Andrew's back. So well, thanks, so, Dr. Mondad. My pleasure. Please stay here and, okay. and chime in okay. as I've okay. been chiming in All right. uh, with, oh, I with love your it, part. This is the way it needed to be. It's great. So we've learned about binge eating disorder as being more common than we thought, that it's underdiagnosed, that it's related to loss of control, and really it not necessarily treated the same way as we would treat a comorbidity. Like if they have MDD and treat that, the BD may still be there. So we need to have separate discrete treatments that are efficacious in the management of binge eating disorder. Now, the psychological treatments for binge eating disorder has been the foundation of treatment for many, many years. Cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal therapy can reduce binge eating behavior. However, access to this can be quite limited in your community. Also, uh, affordability is a question in terms of insurance coverage. It can be difficult. Not everyone will respond to psychological treatments, but an important percentage do. There's generally little or no weight loss with the treatment. However, you do stop the, the inevitable weight gain that occurs if you continue to binge eat. If you stop binge eating, you're not going to continue to gain weight. So future weight gain is, is relatively well served by a psychological treatment. It's just acute weight loss will not occur. Now, these uh, have been offered in... in in many uh, specialized treatment centers you can refer patients to, uh, but not everyone can access them. And it requires a commitment as yeah, well. CBT is not available. CBT is not available in my community. It just isn't. I'm, we're in a town of 60,000. It is in New York City. Yeah. It's not here. And it requires a commitment. You have to you know, do your homework and you have to go to the sessions and so on. Not everyone is so eager to, to do that. But when we look at the efficacy and effectiveness of psychological treatments and look on the outcome of abstinence from binge eating, there's a lot of evidence supporting CPT and IPT. There's also, uh, they're highly manualized also, so it's a standard process. There's also um, self-guided CBT that also has been looked at. Uh, I sometimes encourage patients to get this book and read it and let me know what they think about it. And I've gotten really mixed reviews. Some patients really hate it. And some say, okay, it's interesting, but I've done all that stuff before. So your my individual mileage will vary for this one. I think it's much preferable to have a, a therapist-led CBT uh, treatment uh, being provided than manualized with a book and you try to do it on your own with that. We also have pharmacological treatments for binge eating disorder. There are many that have been tried and, and not all of them successfully. Antidepressants can reduce binge episode frequency but not effective for weight loss, may increase appetite and is kind of problematic in that regard. Anticonvulsants have been used to pyramate is efficacious in reducing binge eating episodes and also leads to a decrease in weight. But as we know, it can have a very negative effect on cognitive function. It is also difficult to titrate high enough to be at an effective dose. Anti-obesity anorectic agents have also been tried, uh, but many of them have been removed from the market. Medications for addictive disorders, your mileage will vary greatly. I've tried all of these with my patients. I've even had a patient on a trial of baclofen based on case reports. I was really desperate here. And I got the patient on really high doses of baclofen that you know, ordinarily would, would not be used. And it still didn't work. 
And then when I went to see, well, okay, I'm going to get this patient off it because it didn't work. Well, I found out that withdrawal from baclofen can lead to psychotic symptoms. And you have to do it really slowly. So I had spent months getting that patient off something that, that really didn't work. But you get desperate because there's not much available. ADHD medicines have been also assessed, and one of them is approved for BD, LDX, Listex amphetamine, and I'll go over the data that supports it shortly. And then we have uh, dual-acting dopamine and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, desotriline, where it's in front of the FDA, and we'll know soon enough whether it's approved for binge eating disorder. So we have a lot of candidate drugs. Some really didn't, never made it even out of the anecdotal quasi-experimental studies that were done. Some never made it out of the rigorous randomized controlled trials that were done, uh, leaving LDX as the only approved drug at present uh, and perhaps be, to be followed by desotriline you know, in with, the near future. With Listex amphetamine, I just wanted to say also they, there is a high rate of co-occurrence of ADHD yes. in binge eating disorder. So if you have an ADHD patient, be looking to, to make sure that they don't have binge eating disorder. Yeah, good point. When we look at the pharmacological treatments for, for BD, on the top of the list, uh, the, the top chart is LDX in the meta-analysis looking at what works and what doesn't. Favoring treatment pretty much consistently is the trials for LDX. Look below is all the other trials, uh, fluoxetine, estaloprem, duloxetine, fluoxetine, fluvoxamine, sertraline, citalopram, bupropion, all antidepressants that you know, work for MDD, and we would hope, okay, maybe it'll take care of this eating disorder this person has. Each individual trial doesn't really give us enough information to say that this is worthwhile. When you cross that vertical line with the number one on it, it means that you can't really differentiate placebo from treatment statistically. But when you put all the data together, it is statistically significant. The only problem is there's like 10 different drugs here. So it's kind of meaningless. Uh, I'm not going to give all 10 and you know, hope for the best. And the idea here is there is no one single agent that really stood out. In contrast to LDX, which consistently demonstrated a treatment effect. Well, let's go back to topiramate for a moment. Uh, it has been used off-label for quite some time, uh, and it is superior to placebo in reducing both binge eating and weight. However, the side effect profile is uh, disconcerting, I would say, and high rates of adverse events and a high discontinuation rate is routinely encountered when we try it, and it was evidenced as such in an open-label extension study. So... You know, desperate times require desperate measures, and we'll reach for this, but keep in mind, getting it high enough for, uh, to be effective is difficult because it's not well tolerated. Uh, so Topiramate Topamax, what's the nickname? Dopamax. Yeah, okay, so you got it. It impairs cognition. LDX is FDA approved for BD. It's indicated for moderate to severe BD, not indicated for weight loss. So this is how the FDA deals with, uh, okay, we don't want people to take these drugs for weight loss. It has to be given for the BED. Moderate to severe is how it was tested. The DSM tells us that if you have one to three episodes per week, you're still mild. But if someone is distressed by it and impacts their functioning, 
well, you can bump it up to a moderate. So I would still treat those patients. Cardiac disease risk of abuse must be assessed when prescribing. It's a scheduled drug. Recommended starting dose is 30, and you increase at increments of 20 milligrams at one-week intervals to this range of 50 to 70. Does that mean 30 doesn't work? No, but it wasn't tested as such, and of course I've used lower doses. Higher doses are tricky of LDX. Dry mouth is probably the most common adverse event that people complain mm -hmm. about it, and it could be quite severe. It's taken once daily in the morning with or without food, and you want to avoid afternoon doses because it can impair sleep. Now, I, I mentioned that the most common time that people binge eat is after their spouse goes to bed. And LDX, you know, you give it in the morning. So I'm often asked the question, how could this work if I take it in the morning? Well, in the ADHD world, you want things to work when you're awake, and they're generally, you know, short acting, uh, short half-life, um, and you can play around with how it's, uh, the release into the blood is delayed and so on, but the idea is to get the stimulant in there during waking hours when you are working or going to school. With BED, you want it to be, you know, all day long. But you know what? The pathophysiology of ADHD and BED are different. ADHD, primarily cortical, and BED, primarily subcortical. And the effects of stimulants subcortically are different than cortically. And so that's why it would last even through binges at night are well controlled with this uh, intervention. The clinical trials included three. Uh, one was a phase two, 11-week proof of concept trial, and then there were two 12-week phase three trials, and they all demonstrated reductions in binge eating episodes per week. But what was even more important is they showed large effects on reductions on obsessive thoughts about food and compulsive behaviors about food. This was measured with the Yale-Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale adapted for binge eating, called the Y-Box-BE for short. That's the key to this puzzle. You want to reduce the obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors, and this is expressed in decreased binge eating episodes. Phase three acute studies demonstrated clearly a separation from placebo in binge eating days per week over time. And you see this effect relatively quickly. What is even more relevant, though, is how many patients actually ceased binge eating entirely in the last four weeks of the trial, and actually a pretty substantial number. Now, the dry mouth issue uh, deserves some, some notation here, because my patients complain of all these things. They complain yeah. of sedation, dry mouth, and they complain bitterly about it. Uh, with anything I use, they complain of nausea, too, by the way. <laughs> Any, but anyway, I'm getting off track here. The percentage of patients who complained of dry mouth was about 40% on LDX at all doses, about 7% on placebo. Why would anyone on placebo complain of any side effects to begin with? Well, they can, and they don't know what they're getting. They probably were talking in the waiting room and, oh yeah, I got that too. Yeah. <laughs> and so you expect a placebo effect getting better, but you can also anticipate getting a harm, the nocebo effect. And I didn't make up that word, nocebo, it's real, and there's a literature about it. So 7% complained of dry mouth. 36, 40, minus 7, let's see, I'm doing some math here. Number needed to harm is 4. 
for every four patients who were randomized to LDX versus placebo, you would expect to encounter one additional patient with a dry mouth. So this is something you will expect. The, the other adverse events were far less frequent and not really an obstacle. What about the number needed to treat? Well, we're going to cover that in just a moment. Okay. So who here has heard about number needed to treat, number needed to harm? You didn't come to my session yesterday. All right. He's so, the number needed to treat guy. Man. And number. NNTman at gmail.com. <laughs> All right. What about long-term use? Because, okay, we can decrease binge eating episodes in the short term in a you know, three-month period. Okay, so what? You know, we need to have an enduring effect. So a study was done with list dexamphetamine maintenance, 39 weeks long their, uh, course of treatment, where people were stabilized on LDX for their BED, then randomized to either continue it or to go on to placebo. Those who uh, went on to placebo did worse, as you would imagine, in terms of recurrence of their binge eating. Not all of them had a recurrence, but 32% of those on placebo did. Only 3.7% of those on LDX had a recurrent. 3.7, that's one of the questions. 3.7. Okay, got it? Three, write it down. <laughs> LDX, 3.7 recurrence rate in the maintenance study. The difference, 32 minus 4 is 28. That goes into the number 100 about four times. So for every four patients who were randomized to continue LDX versus going on to placebo, you avoided a recurrence. That's actually a pretty robust effect size. Mm. And if had you come to my talk yesterday, uh, it would be very clear. But you'll have to trust me on this one. This is a, a, a good number uh, in terms of studies like this. So let's go over response. So this is a clinical global impression improvement score of very much improved or much improved in the short-term study. That occurred in close to 90% of patients who received LDX and in about 50% of those who received placebo. That placebo is good stuff. So you remember George Carlin? He called it placebos. Placebos, good stuff. <laughs> Anyhow, response, CGI of one or two, very much improved or much improved, you may wonder why people on placebo had a 50% responder rate. Well, when you do these trials, you also do food diaries. You also have structured assessments, and you focus more attention on the eating behaviors. And a lot of people do respond to that. But if you were randomized to LDX, more responded to that. Yeah, but I think it's important that you appreciate also that that placebo effect has a lot to do with you. Yeah. And, and that's dramatic. That's your listening, you know, your being interested, your caring for your patient. You can't, you can't deny that that is helping the placebo to work. So you are a big part of it, and, and the drug is a little stronger in this sense, but you also need to be involved. Yeah, placebos are good stuff. They are. Yeah. All right, 90 minus 50. Uh, let's see, that's 40. That goes into 100. Round up three times. For every three patients randomized to LDX versus placebo, you would expect to encounter one additional responder. That's a very robust effect size. Remission, so cessation of binge eating episodes in the last four weeks of the study. I said before, coyingly, that it was a, a nice number. It mm-hmm. was 40%. 40% of those randomized to LDX stopped binging in the last four weeks of the study. 
Hey, that's terrific. It has completely stopped. I mean, yeah, completely. Zero. No more binging. Not one. Cured. Yeah. At least for then, for those four weeks. And then those on placebo, that was only achieved in 15%. So that's tough to do on just, you know, relationship and, you know, being nice (laughs) alone. 40 minus 15 is what? Oh, um, 25. 25. That goes into 100 how many times? Oh, don't do this to me. Four times. Right. And a T of four. (laughs) For every four patients randomized to LDX versus placebo, you would encounter one additional remitted patient. Okay, so those are nice numbers. And they tell us that this intervention is something that I would probably want to seriously consider with a patient with BD. What about unacceptability? Well, that could be defined as a side effect that says, no way, I'm going to take this, I'm going to stop this drug. So let's take a look at the rate of discontinuation due to the AE. 4.6% on LDX, 2.3% on placebo. Very small numbers. So even though they may have had dry mouth, they were so grateful to have a reduction in their symptoms that they lived with this, with this dry mouth. Now, not everyone. I mean, I've had patients who said, there's no way I can deal with this. But for the most part, very low rates of discontinuation due to adverse events. 4.6 minus 2.3 is... Oh, don't do this yeah, to yeah, me. It's, it's 2.3, <laughs> and that goes into 100 about 44 times. So it took 44 patients to be randomized to LDX versus placebo before having to encounter one additional person stopping because of an adverse event. You're going to be far more likely to encounter response or remission than have to stop the drug because of an adverse effect. That's called likelihood to be helped or harmed. How did I come up with this? Well, it's just the ratio of NNH to NNT. So 44 divided by 3 or 4 44 was the number needed to harm for discontinuation due to an adverse event. Number need treat, number needed to be randomized to drug versus placebo before getting response or remission. That's a three or a four. 44 divided by three or four is like 11, 15, like large numbers. You're 11 to 15 times more likely to encounter the response or remission than having to stop the drug. So if this doesn't give you a compelling story, I don't yeah. know what will. Yeah, And it fits. I, I, clinically, that fits with what we see. So the goal is to decrease the frequency of binge episodes. LDX is not being used to wait for weight loss. Weight loss will probably occur, but it's not intended to do that. You want to warn your patient that dry mouth will probably occur. And you want to be told right away if the patient feels revved up, irritable, not feeling themselves. You mm-hmm. worry about... Uh, maybe uh, mania. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the comorbidities. And be open-minded about dosing. The clinical trials, you know, dose it one way. Your patients are individuals, and they may need modifications. So in the pipeline, what do we have? Well, we need something in addition to LDX. I like to have choices because something doesn't, you know, it's not for everyone. One size does not fit all. We have desotrelene, a selective norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor, does not directly stimulate dopamine release. So this is not like an amphetamine or a methylphenidate. It's FDA, uh, in front of the FDA uh, for now a little while, and we should expect to hear from them in the coming months. Two positive pivotal trials for BED, shown to reduce binge behavior as well as obsessive-compulsive thoughts related to binge eating and body weight. 
generally well tolerated. We'll go over that in just a moment. The most common adverse effects, insomnia, dry mouth, decreased appetite. But it is a different chemical entity than LDX. So does this work, being different? Well, let's take a look at the flexible dose study. In a randomized, double-blind, flexible dose, 12-week study, very similarly designed to the LDX studies, what was measured was change from baseline on binge days per week, the uh, binge eating CGI severity score, the Y-box BE, obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors related to eating, and the four-week cessation from binge eating. By the way, four-week cessation from binge eating in this particular study was 47% in the desotriline group, 47, four and a seven. Remember the four, write it down. Write it down. Yeah, <laughs> and you'll get this right. Versus 21% in the placebo group. I just can't wait to calculate the number needed to treat. Here we go. 50% versus 20% will make it easy on ourselves. What's 50 minus 20? Uh, 30. 30 goes into 100? Oh, about three times. 3.3 times. 3.3 times. And we'll round okay. it up to four. So the number needed to treat a four. Hey, that's kind of like the same, what we saw with LDS. It's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, hey, this seems to work. Let's take a look at the decrease in obsessions. We had a robust decrease in obsessional thoughts related to binge eating with desotriline. This is key to the pathology of binge eating disorder. We have a decrease in compulsions related to eating with desotriline. This is also key to the pathology related to binge eating disorder. So we see reduction in binge eating episodes, and then underneath it all is this obsession compulsion business. Yeah, pretty dramatic separation at two weeks, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, so if we take a look, these drugs in general, when you treat disorders like this, uh, you want to see something pretty quickly. If you don't, they're either not taking it or you have the wrong dose. Now, there's also a fixed-dose trial that looked at, uh, at, at target doses, and treating at 6 milligrams a day versus placebo worked for versus placebo did not when comparing groups of patients versus placebo. Now, when we have this in our hands in the real world, we're free to dose however we want and however the patient tolerates the drug. This is very important because clinical trials measures effects in groups. We treat individuals. Your mileage may vary, and you need to be flexible in your approach. Yeah, clinical trials are a bit strange because you've got a patient that you don't find in real life, well, you do, but it's hard. Then you've got a rapid titration of the drug to try to get there fast and get it all done. That's not how we practice. So that's a very good point. When we take a look at uh, discontinuation rates due to adverse events in 4 milligrams and 6 milligrams in the placebo groups, uh, they were higher for desotriline than placebo. When we take a look at the most common adverse events, uh, insomnia, dry mouth, headache, decreased appetite, nausea, and anxiety. The usual suspects. So no drug is going to be free of side mm -hmm. effects. That's why I like to have choices, because in the clinical trials, patients may be reluctant to stop a drug. Not so in clinical practice. When they complain bitterly about a side effect, and then you have to have an alternative. Before the availability of LDX, I tried the litany uh, potential treatments for BD and, you know, one after the other it just didn't work or it was not well tolerated. Even with LDX, it's not necessarily well tolerated enough 
in my outpatient practice. I need an alternative. So I'm looking forward to not only desotriline, but perhaps other interventions as well. The more, the merrier, I think, I in terms of our choices. What about combination treatment? CBT plus medication. <clears throat> hey, that should work better, right? We're used to this paradigm in the treatment of major depressive disorder where of course, adding psychotherapy with a medicine will yield better outcomes than either one alone. That's always been our assumption. However, when this was tested in BED, this was not true in six out of seven published studies. So combining didn't necessarily make it better than one or the other, with one exception, CBT plus tapiramate. Okay, well, tapiramate is not actually my ideal choice here, but, you know, interesting to note, CBT plus LDX has not been tested. So let's summarize and then go on to uh, talking about lived experience with BED. Andrew, if you can come up while we're, we're summarizing. We're going to set up the chairs a little differently here, like right in the middle. I understand that our microphones may interfere with each other, so You're it's, be right it's in not the to be, uh, yeah, right in the middle. No pressure. BED is different from overeating. So this is a fact. In the presence of uh, uh, the loss of control, it changes everything. <clears throat> loss of control and overeating will lead to marked distress, strong feelings of shame or guilt. We're going to hear firsthand about that. We need to remind ourselves that psychiatric and comorbid somatic disorders are extremely common, as well as functional impairments. We need to be aware that BD goes undiagnosed for many years because patients are not specifically asked about their eating behaviors. Hopefully that it, will change. Yeah. Hopefully years. that will change. Both mm -hmm. men and women are affected across racial and ethnic groups. Andrew's not your typical BD patient that you would have thought of, right? He's not. And this just goes to show that flies under the radar in many of our practices. There are effective treatment modalities, CBT and IPT. Behavioral weight loss treatments are also sometimes combined with CBT and IPT because CBT and IPT alone don't lead to weight loss. There are pharmacological approaches uh, that we talked about. List amphetamine, LDX, has received regulatory approval, and the FDA accepted desotriline, uh, the new drug application for evaluation for BED. So with that, Let's have our little panel discussion. I think it's a great idea. You know, we sat yesterday, and Andrew started to talk, as he did with you. What got you when you looked at that advertisement for the trial? What was it that got to you? I think just seeing the words binge eating disorder, for me, just, um, it, you know, it really hit the nail on the head as far as I was like, wow, someone's actually trying to do something about this problem. Um, because for so many years, there really wasn't uh, treatment. I, I really tried everything. I mean, I tried different diets, uh, doctors, you know, talk therapy. And just to see the words there, you know, there's a study. Even though I wasn't overly um, enthusiastic in the sense of it actually helping me, um, you know, just seeing those words, binge eating disorder treatment study, really, um, you know, it really hit a nerve with me. And I think it was within the first to second week, you looked at me and you said, Yeah, I have my life back. 
because for 35 years I had no life whatsoever, 24-7. I was thinking about food. Um, it affected relationships, jobs. Uh, my ex-wife was like, if you looked at me the way you looked at a cheeseburger, maybe we would still be together. <laughs> but it was true. Like, I, I literally had a spend, I would spend my whole day multitasking. So I'm thinking about going on an eating binge and what I'm, am I going to eat next while I'm trying to do my job or be in relationships. And it just was mentally exhausting. So, you know, when I started the study... The, within the first day, you know, I would say by the nighttime, I noticed, wow, my urge to binge has diminished. And at first I was thinking, well, maybe this is just the placebo effect. Um, but then day two, day three, and then when we had gone about a week, I was like, wow, I have a whole other life now because I'm not thinking about food all the time. You know, I've, I started going back to hobbies that I used to enjoy that I had to stop, like, you know, reading and things like that, because I just couldn't... F it was very hard for me to read a book and focus because I was also thinking about food. And so when I had mentioned that I, to the doctor, I had my life back, I was like, wow, I just feel like the, you know, the, the monkey's off my back, that type of... Um, or the best visual, it's, you know, when you think of things like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, at nighttime, I would always turn into Mr. Hyde. As, as the doctor mentioned, um, when I was married most of my binges would be late at night with no one around because I was humiliated and I was embarrassed by the amount of food I was eating. Um, the other thing was drive... Could you give us an idea of that? Yeah, so for me, like a normal binge would be, you know, a lot of times I would combine different things. You know, it could be $20 worth of McDonald's. $20 worth of you McDonald's? Know, and the frustrating thing for me when I would go to a fast food place is... As I'm ordering, they would keep saying, would you want to drink with, do you want to drink with that? And I was like, wait a second, I'm not done ordering. Like, I would say, okay, I want, well, I, I would say, like, okay, I'm having a Big Mac, you know, 10-piece McNugget. And then they would be like, do you want to drink with that? And it's like, I'm not done ordering. How many times do you have to go through this? So uh, what I started doing was going through the drive through because then you could put in a longer order without that person constantly cutting you off. So, like, a normal thing would be, like, 20-piece McNugget, double quarter pounder, you know, fish fillet sandwich, french fries. Then I would go home. It could be a large pizza, you know, a half gallon of ice cream. I mean, you know, really obscene quantities of food, you know, because I'm, I'm half Italian, and for a lot of people, they're like, well, it's Italian-Americans. Food is love. Food is love. You're just a big guy that eats a lot. So, you know, for most of my life, I was told it's not a real problem. It's just... And in your family? Yeah, and in my family. My father, he, he died when he was 56. Um, you know, when I was really young, at 3 in the morning, I saw him at the freezer looking around nervously while he was eating a, a completely frozen donut out of the freezer. Because um, we, we, we used to go to this place called Mr. Donut, and they would have day-old donuts for half price. So my mother would get bags of them and then freeze them, but then she would try to ration them out, like, to one at a time. And I just saw him eating, like, completely frozen jelly donuts. Um, the poor guy. Um, and then I, at that point, I realized, okay, there is a problem here. This is going, going beyond just in, you know, just liking to eat a lot of food. There was an issue. And I noticed with him, he did a lot of late nights with no one around. Like, he didn't realize I was watching. Um, and unfortunately with him, it just, you know, he didn't like to talk about it. He didn't consider it like a real problem. And, you know, he, that side of the family, they have kind of a macho, stubborn, 
personality and that they don't see this as a real problem. They think this is just a cultural thing or this is who we are. But, you know, I have two siblings that have this. Um, my grandfather on that side unfortunately passed, you know, from obesity before I, I was born. And then when I was 16, my father, you know, died of a heart attack at, at age 56, um, which they, you know, said was a weight-related um, death, unfortunately. So it, it does run in my family, but unfortunately, a lot of my family members, they, they don't consider it a real condition. They're like, you're not, you know, they're like, it's not drugs or alcohol. You, know, you can't be addicted to food. So, the, I, you know, so then you have the this, this stigma of, well, you just lack discipline or you lack self-control. Um, you know, I've been working out for, for 30 years daily. Um, and so for when, when people say, well, you don't have the discipline, you know, it, it is frustrating. Because so, so, Andrew, you know, what, what makes you very different from a lot of people with binge eating disorder is that your, your occupation and your, tra your, your personal training, uh, you know, occupation, and you're physically very active. And yes. you're able to shed, you were able to shed the extra calories, and it wasn't yeah. obvious. Yes, you know, I would say, like, before the study, I, I was about 50 pounds heavier. Um, but, you know, people, you know, a lot of times they would be like, well, you, you don't really look like a trainer, or they would just be like, you're just a bulky guy. You're just like a strong, like a football player. They're like, you're just a, you know, stocky guy. So for a lot of people, they really didn't, they wouldn't look at me and really know there was an issue there. But for me, I was like, for the amount of training I'm doing, um, and... I, I did, I always felt that, you know, being a trainer, I should be able to handle and control this problem on my own. And that's why I had a lot of stress from this, because I kept thinking, well, I'll, you know, I'm doing something wrong, you know. And, and that was the, always the frustrating thing for me, because I always felt like I should be able to fix this problem myself, and, and I just couldn't. I, I, I needed that outside help. So, a 12-week trial, right? Yes. And... Then you stopped the medication. Yes, I stopped. I did the 12-week trial, um, and then actually we, we, we had stopped, and then we went the year on the medication. On different, yeah. We went, and then, um, and then it's been a year since I've been off the medication, and um, I have, I've not had an eating binge. I mean, it, you know, it's funny, because I always tell the clients, I was like, there's no magic pill. But for me, this was a magic pill in the sense of, from day one, it diminished my um, urge to binge. And then within a few days, I mean, I, it, it was gone. I mean, it just, you know, I could eat a normal portion of food and be full and then stop, which before I could never do that. I would always eat till I'm full and then eat till I'm way, way overstuffed. So it was almost like every day was kind of that Thanksgiving feeling times a thousand. I mean, I just could, like, I couldn't stop myself. Like, a, seeing a buffet like this, I would have been, like, shaking. You know, it's... I used to watch those old Wolfman movies when he would turn, you know, when the moon would come out, and that's exactly what it felt like. I felt like you have to chain me up because I, I can't control myself. Or that visual of, you know, Bruce Banner turning into the Hulk, that's what it felt like. It was like Hulk smash. I'm just gonna pull a chair up to the buffet because I don't want to spend all the time going up and down. Um, and it, 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 all of a sudden, that problem, you know, after I started the study, it was gone. You know, so it's, it's very interesting. He would be one of the 60% in the long-term trials that <clears throat> maintained. Yeah. Well, another way of looking at it is, you know, because of the one-year treatment, is that finally maybe 
the uh, striatal connections in, you know, deep inside the brain have been, you know, adjusted and are now working as they should instead of, uh, you know, uh, generating asepsis thoughts and compulsive behaviors regarding the food. It's been switched. So a little neuroplasticity here. Yeah, a little neuroplasticity. And it, 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 it took a little while, but it didn't take forever. So... Your mileage will vary, I'm sure, in treatments for BED, but this would not be completely out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, it really changed my whole, move, my whole way of thinking toward food. And then I could, you know, get on a place of, you know, eating, eating healthy but not feeling like I'm depriving myself or torturing myself. And just, um, you know, even things like holidays, I always struggled with people trying to have conversations with me because I was always obsessed with what am I going to eat next and are we going to run out of, you know, mashed potato. You know, there was so much anxiety around food. Even something as simple as going to the movie theater, I would get anxiety because I would be like, are they not going to get my popcorn right because I always had to layer the butter and salt. And now I can go to the movies and not even be phased. I don't even eat when I go to the movies anymore. Where before I couldn't do that. A big part of most of my social activities was, you know, the binge eating. Um, so it's, so it really has just altered my whole, you know, thought process toward food. And that I, like, I still get hungry, but the difference now is I can get, I'll eat a normal serving size, I'll be full, and then that's it. Where before, it's, it just opened the door to the binge, but now it's like the door closes. So it, that, that's been the exciting um, thing for me that's, it's really been life-changing. Excellent. You know, why don't we open it up for Q&A? We have uh, about 15 or so minutes left. If you would care to write down your questions on the, on the question cards. I see some. Yeah, we, we need questions. We'd love questions. For and Andrew. it could be addressed to any one of us or all yeah. of us. What cardiac issues and or history, EKG changes, would be an absolute contraindication to LDX? Uh, you know, it's very important that you not administer LDX to anyone who has a serious family history of early death from cardiac illness. That's number one. Number two, you need, or unless you get that patient carefully screened by a cardiologist. Number two, anyone with structural disease, and that would mean coronary artery disease, uh, you know, valvular disease, serious heart disease, number two. And that's important to know. Number three, I would say that if you had a history of a conduction abnormality, Wolf Parkinson White or another shortened PR interval types, type QT interval uh, prolongation, I would, and even drugs that can, can produce QT prolongation, I would be very cautious. I would probably not use. So most important would be that. There's others, and in younger patients, you know, the other thing we have to think about is asymmetrical hypertrophy, um, you know, septal hypertrophy. So, be honest with you, uh, I would probably do an echo on a patient who I had a question of that, and I would make sure that they were safe. But anyone with a history of, of un, undiagnosed syncope, abnormal EKG from um, conduction abnormality, or, or structural disease, of any kind with coronary artery disease, 
or other peripheral artery disease. That's the other thing. I mean, if you have it peripherally, you're likely to have it in your coronary arteries. I would be cautious. So I here's not use it. Uh, an easy question, and I like these. Does combining CBT or IPT with Vyvanse further improve, improve outcomes? Well, we don't know. Uh, logically, I think it should, but we just don't have controlled trials to tell us whether that's true or not. There was a lot of questions about combining bupropion with naltrexone, uh, either in the Contrave product or doing it on your own. And it's an area of interest using anorectic agents to try and manage uh, BED. And uh, all of them are kind of been looked at. There's nothing specific or definitive that tells us these are reasonable options. In my own experience, uh, I have used this combination without any success. But again, your mileage may vary. And if you try the regular approaches and they don't work, you have to reach for other approaches and hope that they will. But you're going to get diminishing returns as you go down the list because you're getting more and more desperate. Andrew, you got a great question there. Love that question. Yes. So the question was, were there other uh, obsessions or compulsions that were helped? And if not, how do you currently deal with them and, and how? Um, for me, really, it was all about um, the compulsive uh, overeating and obsessions with food. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the type of, I think what they're asking was, you know, so now that I'm not binging and I'm not obsessing about food, are you obsessing about something else? And I'm really not. Um, so for me, this, you know, this, um, this, this study took care of, of, you know, the only obsessive thing I had was the binge eating. So uh, it, I'm, I'm not doing something else in place of it. Um, so it's, it, it's gone. Here, let me give you a bunch here. Okay. Uh, how do you treat dry mouth? And what about a patient who developed multiple cavities on Vyvanse? So I'm, I'm from the era of nortriptyline. How many here have prescribed nortriptyline? Yeah, so that caused a lot of dry mouth. And... Some of my patients had dental problems because of it. It usually led to me uh, trying all sorts of things that didn't work and then ultimately switching the drug. And ultimately, uh, you may have to do that. But, uh, you know, circular candies um, is one idea. Keeping well hydrated is another. But there's a, there are some patients where it is really so severe that nothing really worked. I don't know, Dr. Montana, what, what have you done? for dry mouth that is, seems um, intractable? Well, you know, you need to have something. You don't want sugar in your mouth, right. certainly. Um, cloves have worked for some, some time for me. But also, um, biotin is a specific um, mouthwash that is, uh, lubricates the mouth a little bit. Most people don't complain bitterly. I've not had a, a real big problem, but I have recommended those things. Okay. So I, I did have a little bit of that, but I, I found if, um, if I stayed hydrated and drank enough water, it, it really wasn't an issue. Because um, I, I did notice a little bit of that, of that in the beginning, but as long as I drank, because I, I like to drink a lot of water anyway, um, and then it, that pretty much took care of it, for me anyway. Good. So. Yeah, so even though you, the problem is, uh, is common with the medication, again, 
it wasn't very significant right. enough to, to have them drop out. But you'll have your outliers. Uh, we all do. And then mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we, we have to stop because we have no other – we yeah. tried everything. So what is the target dose of topiramate for BED? First of all, topiramate obviously, as you know, is not approved for BED. And it's usually going to be – the doses that we use is 50, usually to 100. Uh, I have not had good success. You go higher, huh? Yeah, so it's the higher doses that seem to work, but they're not well tolerated, so 200 and up. Too much cognitive impairment, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, Do other amphetamine formulations work? They may work. So there is limited evidence in the literature regarding this, but – there, there's nothing to prevent you from trying this. Uh, none of the drugs other than LDX have been specifically tested as rigorously and none are approved by the FDA for this purpose, so you're kind of on your own there. But, you know, you can try, yeah. and there is some anecdotal evidence out there. So here's an interesting question. Desotrelin is also in trials. Well, at this time, the trials have been submitted Oh, and trials for ADHD, I'm sorry, that had been submitted as well. Um, how can we say that Tosotiline is going to be better than LDX when they both have similar stimulating effects and similar indications? I don't think we're trying to say, and I'm, no, I'm not trying to say that Tosotiline is better than LDX. I know you're not as well, Les. There are options. There, you need more than one tool, don't you? So, and we have contraindications for stimulant with cardiac uh, disease. I don't know what's going to happen yet. With desotrolene, to my knowledge, there shouldn't be. But as, as we progress down this pathway, we need more options. You were on a trial of desotrolene. Yes. So it, it works. At least it worked for him and for other patients I know that were in the trial. So that being said, we need more than one way to achieve uh, the cessation of binge eating. And I'm glad we have at least one other way. So here's a question uh, or a comment. Ask everyone about binging. You'll pick up anorexics, etc., who binge on one Oreo. Interesting <laughs> thought. So I, have you ever eaten more than what you had planned to, and did you lose control over what you were eating? Uh, yes. Okay, tell me about it. And then they'll tell you. Uh, and I guess on occasion you'll get uh, uh, some responses that aren't consistent with binge eating disorder, but you have your answer. Not consistent with binge eating disorder, you move on. But the yield can be, uh, yes, and by the way, I, you know, I ate uh, every piece of bread in the house, because that's all there was, but I ate it all, and I lost control over doing so. And you may get that response, which is quite different than eating one Oreo. Okay, here's someone who says, why no mention of neuromodulation? transcranial magnetic stimulation. I am not aware that there's published data on that, but if there is, that is cool. Because, you know, obviously it's very valuable for many of the uh, diseases we see, uh, not only depression, anxiety, et cetera, and maybe there is some data. And someone's trying to give me an idea where to look, Toronto Western Research. Do you know anything about that, Liz? No, I, I'm not familiar with that. You're Canadian, you should. I should, but I'm from Montreal, <laughs> not Toronto. I, I root for the Habs, not the Leafs. Uh, I was always a Bruins person, so <laughs> it's a good rivalry. 
So please address comorbidity with bipolar disorder. Yeah, it's tough. Because if you're bipolar and prone to manic episodes, you're not going to be so enthusiastic about prescribing a stimulant. Uh, so it's a tough call to make. And, you know, if a person is well-controlled on a mood stabilizer slash atypical antipsychotic and they're quite distressed about binge eating, you may not have a choice but to... Uh, to go down that road. But and if you do, you better carefully. start a little lower dose and yeah. watch carefully. Yeah. Any concerns of use of Vyvanse in patients with comorbid substance use disorder? Yes. So it's uh, very well described in product labeling is that you want to uh, avoid diversion and misuse. Hard to do if someone is uh, hell-bent on abusing what you're prescribing. So you'll have to use your clinical judgment there and also assess the degree of the severity of the binge eating and uh, whether there's enough motivation there to, to handle this. Yeah, and there is some conflicting data as well that shows uh, prisoners who were uh, addicts when they were started with psychotherapy before release and continued after uh, discharge from the uh, prison those that were placed on LDX had a much higher rate of staying in therapy and avoiding use of the substance that they were uh, interred because of, usually, or with. So um, there's really conflicting data there. Um, would you recommend a treatment combination of bupropion with naltrexone, 50 milligrams? Yeah, we just covered that, yeah. Yeah, you, you, got, you got that one. Have you observed that LDX increased anxiety in your depressed or anxious patients? Not particularly. You know, uh, they've been well controlled with their foundational treatment for their MDD or anxiety disorder, yet remained with uh, significant uh, functional impairment and uh, uh, quite upset about their binge eating. Uh, they're no longer as depressed or anxious, but they have this eating behavior, which uh, is now the focus of attention. And generally, as long as the other conditions are, are well controlled, you, you will be careful on how you dose uh, your intervention, but you need to treat it. Has Contrave been tried for BED? Has it been? So I'm, I'm trying to, to remember. I don't know offhand. I don't remember. I can look it up. If you get back to me during the conference, we can sit down and I'll look on my computer to see what my notes say. I just don't remember. Yeah. Well, we're down to two minutes. Can we use LDX even if a person purges to lose the weight and has bulimia nervosa? So there is an approved treatment for bulimia nervosa. <laughs> you can give fluoxetine, approved for bulimia nervosa. You know, it's interesting Lily was actually looking at fluoxetine for weight loss until they looked at the long-term studies. So short-term, it worked. It was going to be called Lovan, and they were going to hire a huge number of, of reps to do this. I met the, the, at Lily with some of the people that were involved. But as you know, SSRIs long-term are problematic with weight. Uh, it's good to know that you could use it short-term. So, uh, I interesting, with bulimia nervosa, it is fortunately less frequent than BED. Very problematic in terms of the physiological consequences of, of purging 
and laxative abuse. Electrolyte imbalances and so on, dental caries, it, it's, it's very much problematic. And they're generally pretty obvious and will uh, often seek treatment uh, because, you know, purging is a behavior that is quite difficult to, uh, to hide for very long. And if you have uh, dental problems, it's something that's picked up as well. Scars on the back of the hands because of the induction of, of vomiting. Les, what was the target dose uh, of uh, topiramate that you look at? 200 and up. 200 and up. Yeah. So even higher. Yeah. Most ah, here's a question for you. There you go. Were you a, were I, was I a wrestler? Um, not a wrestler, no. I've been a trainer. I do uh, weight training. I do martial arts, uh, Pilates, but a little, little bit of everything. But I never, I, I never actually wrestled, no, I'm not. And I have not. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm pretty certain Dr. Montano has not. <laughs> no. So the answer is no. <laughs> Well, with that, I want to thank you for your questions. And if we didn't get to them, there were just so many of them. Feel free to approach us uh, individually. Thank, thank you, you for staying. Thank we really you. appreciate it.